If you would please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms, we will be looking at Psalm 125 this morning. Psalm 125. Please give attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, that we would see Christ even now, as we study these Old Testament pages. We pray, O Father, that you would pour out your Spirit into your children's heart so that we might see and we might hear our Savior in and through your Word proclaimed and preached. Bless the reading and the preaching of your Word now, we pray and we ask. For we ask it all in the strong name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If I were to ask you, What is the mark of one's transition from adolescence to adulthood? If I were to ask you, what is the indication, the indicator that one has moved from youth to adulthood, from being a boy to a man, from being a girl to a woman, what would you say? I imagine many of you might say it's when you first leave the home and you go off to college and you're no longer under your parents' roof. Or perhaps you would say that it's when you get your first full-time job. Maybe some of you might say that it's when you get married or you start a family. There are many answers to that question, and I don't know that there's any one wrong answer. But I know for myself, I knew that I had become an adult when all of a sudden my life was consumed with worry. All of a sudden, I worried about things that I had never worried about before as a kid. And I imagine that is true for many of you, if not all of you as well. We've all heard it when we were kids, and perhaps you say it now to your kids. You don't have to worry about that now because you're a kid, but when you become an adult, you will have to worry about it. There might not be a truer statement ever said to me. Our adult lives are filled and consumed with worry. And our culture doesn't do anything to alleviate this worry. Rather, it absolutely exacerbates the worry. Think about the way companies advertise their products. Are you worried about your financial future? Invest in this company. Are you worried about the way you look? Buy this cosmetic. Are you worried about the state of your happiness? Buy this drug. Media doesn't help us at all. I am convinced 99%, 100% maybe, 
of news media is meant to cause us to worry. So much so that psychiatrists have now come up with a term called media-induced fear. Media-induced worry. Worry dominates our lives. So much so that it's even the, the primary positive motivator in our lives, isn't it? We worry about our kids, so we put certain restrictions around them. We worry about our retirement, so we start saving. Worry is often the primary motivator to action. Worry dominates and consumes our lives. So much so that there are times when I am worry-free and the feeling is so strange, I start to worry that there's something I'm forgetting about worrying about. And so I search my mind, I find something, and I get back on track. (laughs) Worry dominates our lives. But that is not how the believer is supposed to live. What we find here in Psalm 125 is that the Christian is not to be marked by worry, but by trust. Read with me verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. God's people are to be a people who live a life of trust in the Lord, and not a life of worry. Really, if Scripture were to give you the definition of worry, it would be a lack of trusting in the Lord. Because where does worry ultimately stem from? It stems from a feeling of not being in control. It stems from a feeling and anxiety of not being sovereign over our particular aspect of our lives. And so if that thing is not in the palm of my hand, if that thing is not in the palm of my hand and I'm not in control of it, and if I'm not sovereign over it, now it's time to panic. Now it's time to to worry. But this is not to be the life of a believer, of one who has come to the knowledge that God himself is the only sovereign. And he is not just sovereign over the big things in life. He is sovereign over, as Jesus Christ himself will say, the tiny little hairs on your head. He is sovereign over the food that you eat. He is sovereign over the clothing that you wear. He is sovereign over every tiny molecule in your body. Now that might be a very terrifying thought if our Lord was a malicious, vindictive, dictatorial, sovereign Lord. But as it is, as John himself will say, he is a God who is love. And who is for us all the way to the bitter end, even to the cross itself. So that the sovereign Lord who is sovereign over every little tiny particle in your body is the same God that comes down and becomes man. And faces a life of humiliation purposefully, willingly. And it ends with his crucifixion and his death for his people. So that what we see is we see divine, perfect sovereignty and divine, perfect love meet together in the person and in the face of Jesus Christ. And with such knowledge at our disposal, a life of worry is utter 
foolishness. We are not to live a life of worry, but a life of trusting in the Lord. And I want us to see here in our psalm three things that the psalmist tells us we receive when we trust in the Lord. First, we receive God's assurance, verses 1 through 2. Second, we receive God's protection, verse 3. Third, we receive God's goodness, verses 4 through 5. We receive God's assurance. We receive God's protection. We receive God's goodness. But first, those who trust in the Lord receive God's assurance, verses 1 through 2. Verse 1 again reads, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Now we must ask the question, what does the psalmist mean when he says that those who trust in the Lord will be like Mount Zion? Well, I think, again, the context of this psalm is helpful for us. As Bob has stated over the last two weeks, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 is what we call the Psalm of Ascent. And as Bob has stated, these psalms were psalms that Israel would recite as they traveled into Jerusalem for the three main festivals in the year. For the festival of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And part of these festivals, part of what they would do in these festivals is they would travel to the house of the Lord. They would travel to the temple and offer sacrifices in the temple of God. Well, where was the temple located? It was located on Mount Zion. It is the place where God's house was. It was the place where God himself, by mere condescension, located himself. It was where the house of the Lord was, where God was. So that many times in Scripture, Mount Zion will become shorthand for God himself. Jeremiah 31.6 says these words, Arise, let us go up to Mount Zion, to the Lord our God. Transitioning over into the New Testament in Hebrews 12, uh, the writer speaks of new covenant believers not coming to Mount Sinai, but rather coming to Mount Zion. And the overall point the writer is making is the nearness Christians have now due to the mediatorial, sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. The nearness we have to the living and true God. We are not down at the bottom at the foot of Mount Sinai trembling in fear. But in and through Christ we come near to God into the heavenly tabernacle itself due to the mediatorial work of Christ. So to come to Mount Zion, to say that those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, is to say that we are as God himself. Immovable, unshakable, and abiding forever. During the Revolutionary War, there were many times the ragtag, untrained army was ready to give up ready to put down their arms and and go home and forget the war. But time and time again, their spirits were lifted. They were galvanized because they saw their general, George Washington, and the courage and the bravery he displayed. He He would ride out into the midst of battle and bullets would be whizzing by him, so much so that he would have bullet holes in his uniform 
and the troops were willing and ready to trust and to follow him. Why? Because they thought in hitching their wagon to Washington, they would be like Washington. Immovable, unshakable, courageous, and victorious. To trust in God is to be like God. Immovable, unshakable, and abiding forever. Because the one we trust in is the one who has life in himself who is the eternal God who is pouring over with life and who is ready and willing to pour his life out to those who trust in him. And to trust in him, we become like him. We abide forever. We are eternal and unshakable. To trust in the Lord, we become like Mount Zion. We become like that which we worship. If we worship those things that moth and rust destroy, moth and rust will destroy us. But if we worship that which moth and rust will never destroy, moth and rust will never destroy us. We become like Mount Zion. Then verse 2 we read, As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. As the Israelites are trekking into Jerusalem for these festivals, they're, they're, they're reciting this psalm, and their eyes would gaze upon the mountains that would surround Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat low, and they were surrounded by mountains to their east and to their west, to the north and to the south. And as they looked at this fortified location, as they looked at the protection the mountains gave them, their eyes and their, their thoughts were to, 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 to go and to think of the protection that God himself gives his people. We can't help but think of Second Kings 6 with Elisha and his servant. If you recall there in 2 Kings 6, the Syrian army has uh, Elisha and his servant surrounded in Dothan. The massive Syrian army surrounding just little Elisha and his servant. And his servant sees it and he goes up to Elisha and he says, What are we going to do? And Elisha prays that God would show his servant the army of the Lord that surrounds him. And the Lord opens the eyes of the servant, servant and what does he see? He sees the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around them, encompassing them. As we seek to live out our Christian faith in a world that continually, it seems, to hate Christ and everything to do with his word, it can seem like we are against a massive army, and it's just us. But when we trust in the Lord, our victory is as sure as God is himself. And he protects and surrounds us as the mountains surround Jerusalem. So we see that those that trust in the Lord receive God's assurance. Secondly, we see that those who trust in the Lord receive God's protection. Read verse 3 with me. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Here in verse 3, we have God's protection of the righteous. 
God's protection of His children. God's protection over His people. And notice, He will protect His righteous people from wickedness so that they can live in righteousness. Notice the cause and effect relationship in verse 3. The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land, lest the righteous stretch out their hand. In other words, our obedience to the law of God is made possible because of the grace of God. Our obedience to the law of God is made possible because of the supernatural mercy and work and grace of our Lord. God in His grace surrounds His people and protects them from wickedness. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Paul will say these words, God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice what it is that Paul is saying here, and essentially what our psalmist is saying. God is faithful. God is faithful. God will not let us be overrun by temptation and sin. As we seek to live our lives, brothers and sisters, in conformity to God and to His Word, the power does not lie within ourselves, but within God and His faithfulness. His promise to not allow sin to overtake you. Those who have been bought with the blood of His Son, will never fall away because God will not allow the enemy to get so near that He can deal the death blow. When I was an intern at our church in Charlotte, I and another intern took the youth on a mission trip to Wildwood, New Jersey, and to a place called the Boardwalk Chapel. The Boardwalk Chapel is a ministry of the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and it's been around since 1945. And what it is, is it's a chapel on a two-mile boardwalk in Wildwood, New Jersey. And the ministry, the purpose of this chapel is to minister and to evangelize to those people that, who are frequenting the, the boardwalk. And so what we would do is we would stay outside during the day on the boardwalk, have conversations with people that would go up and down the boardwalk and and try and evangelize. And then at night, every night, there would be a a little service. The word would be proclaimed and, and hymns would be sung. And then at 11.30 at night, we would be sent out to do cold evangelism on the boardwalk. Perhaps the most terrifying thing I've ever had to do. Very terrifying. But... The ministry is an amazing ministry, and it's been around for many, many years, and it has impacted many, many lives. But in August of the year 2000, there was a terrible electrical fire that essentially took out the whole north end of the boardwalk, where the chapel itself was. And if you go to Boardwalk Chapel's website, they show a picture of both buildings surrounding this chapel absolutely decimated filled with rubble, completely destroyed. But right there in the middle is this little chapel, still standing strong, unscathed. 
Now, if you look closely at that chapel today, you will see marks of the burn, marks of the fire. There was some damage, but the fire never came so close as to consume it. And so they still, because of God's preservation, proclaim and preach the word on the boardwalk in Wildwood. Though Satan's fire often surrounds us, though sin, whether it be our own sin or sin that comes from without, often surrounds us, though the fire can cause pain, though the fire can cause cause severe marks and burns at times, God promises that those fires will never get so close to his people as to consume you. He will never let the sword get so close as to kill you. It will leave scars. It will leave burns. But you will never be consumed. If you are God's and if you have been bought with the blood of His Son, God will preserve you. God will protect you. Take heart in that Christian brother and sister. It is a blessed truth that we find here in Psalm 125 and throughout Scripture. Our perseverance as Christians depends on God and his faithfulness and his protection over us. Notice the psalmist says, The scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land. Now that word scepter indicates the idea of rulership or kingship. So really what you have here is the rule and the kingship of wickedness will not rest on the land. Now certainly when we look at Israel's history, we see a share, our share of foreign invaders, foreign enemies, foreign rulers that infiltrate the land of Israel and rule in a scepter of wickedness. You think of Moab, you think of uh, uh, Philistia, Egypt, and, and Assyria, and Babylon, and the list goes on. Many wicked rulers from outside of Israel infiltrating into the land and ruling with a scepter of wickedness. Yet also when we look at Israel's history, we also see a scepter of wickedness coming from within Israel herself. You read the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles, you can't miss it. One wicked king after another. One wicked king after another. Sure, you have righteous kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, but they die and then another wicked king comes and replaces them. And it is this wickedness that we see in the Old Testament pages that comes from within, that brings the wickedness that comes from without. The scepter of wickedness within the walls of Israel herself. There is a lot of talk today about the state of our country, about the state of our culture, and the fact that it is becoming more and more opposed to the Bible. We live in what is called the post-Christian times. And certainly there is room for concern. Certainly it is something that we should be aware of. However, our primary task is not the purity of the culture. It is the purity of the church. The purity of the body of Christ. We just concluded our 2017 General Assembly. 
where we discussed and argued and debated the matters of the church, the matters of doctrine and right biblical practice. And and what's going on there is not just hot air being blown into the wind. What's going on there is something very, very, very important. What happens in our general assemblies, what happens in our presbyteries, what happens in our sessions here at church is an extremely important matter. As your leaders, the leaders of the church, gather together to discuss the affairs of the church and seek to protect her from outside invaders. I would argue that we should be just as concerned, if not more concerned, than what happens within the walls of the church than within the walls of Washington, D.C. And we should be praying for our leaders that they would be faithful to the word and protect the purity of the church and act in a way that is united to the scepter of righteousness, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We must be bound to him in the way we act, in the practices we do, and in the doctrine that we state. Third, we see that trusting in the Lord, we receive God's goodness. We receive God's goodness. Read with me verse 4 through 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts, but to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Notice the psalmist is speaking here in verse 4 about the condition of goodness. And not the practice of goodness, but the condition of goodness, the state of goodness. Do good to those who are good. To those who are are upright in heart. This is not a call for us to make a good deeds checklist, in other words, where I check off my boxes for the day and I say, okay, I'm a good Christian. I'm a good person. No, this is speaking about the condition of the heart. Luke 6, verse 45, Jesus will say, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. But then we look at Romans 3 verses 11 through 12 from the, word, from the lips of Paul. And Paul says these words, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. What is it that Paul is hitting on here? Not that every practical work that we do is outwardly and practically evil, but he's saying that all actions, whether outwardly good or outwardly evil, stem from a heart that has been knit in sin. A heart that has been born in sin, as Psalm 51 will tell us. And apart from the purifying and cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, none are good. No, not one. And so Paul, along with the psalmist, calls us to examine our heart condition due to sin. And to place our trust not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness that God provides, in the goodness that God provides in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And then God, when we are united to Christ by faith, he pours out his Holy Spirit so that in Romans 8, Paul can say, we no longer set our minds on the things of the flesh, but we now set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So that our whole trajectory in life, the general disposition of our lives, the general orientation of our lives is not geared towards man's glory, is not geared towards man-centered honor, but is geared towards the glory and the honor of God. And those works that flow out of a heart that has been cleansed by the blood of Christ are seen and recognized by God. The psalmist says, do good to those who are good. God does good to those who are good. Don't we so often do good in order to be recognized by others? I'll be honest, if if you're anything like me, there are many times in my life where I will do good things and I'll wait for a particular person I want to please to be there so that they will see the good works that I do. And if they're not there, if they're not there to witness my good works, I'll think, what was the reason of doing that good work? I didn't get the praise, I didn't get the glory of the person that I was seeking to get the praise and glory from. But I think, and I want to suggest to you, that the desire for recognition in and of itself is not a bad thing. But it is rather a distortion due to sin of a God-given want and a God-given need. We have been born and created to be in the presence of God. Born and created for God to see us and to see our good works. To take note of the good deeds of His people. Who takes pleasure in seeing His people work for His glory. Think of when you were a little kid and, and you would do something and you just wanted your dad to see what you were doing. And so you, before you did whatever it was you were going to do, you would cry out, Daddy, Daddy, look at this. See what I'm doing. And your dad would say, well done, son. Well done, daughter. Good job. And you'd be filled with joy. We have our son, Ben, who just recently learned how to shoot baskets into a, his little hoop in the living room. And so often, he doesn't talk now, but he'll wait for me to see him, to see him shoot those baskets. And when he makes the basket, he he laughs and he giggles because I say, well done, Ben. Good job. And he laughs and he shoots again. I think that is a microcosmic display of what the Christian life is like. Where we live out our lives in the presence of our Father in heaven. And we seek for Him to see our good works. We cry out, Father, look at what it is I am doing. See, see the good work that I am doing. Take witness of it. I do it for you because you have created me, because you have saved me in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Take note. Bless me. Pour your blessings out upon me. And we can take heart and be absolutely confident that God our Father in and through the Son takes witness of our good works and He says to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank You 
that you take note of the good deeds of your people. That you are a God that loves to lavish us with blessings. That you are a God that cares for us, your people. And that you are a God that will bless us abundantly as we trust in you in our daily lives. We pray, O Lord, that you would build up within us a life of trust so that we might receive your assurance, your protection, and your goodness. Do all this for the sake of your Son, we pray. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.